Welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast, where we are dedicated to reimagining religious practices and congregations and spiritual communities in a way that is totally secular and inclusive. Basically, no matter what you believe, broadly speaking, uh, we're here to help you live your life better. And we do it on the podcast by speaking to interesting people who each have uh, unique experiences about the things in life which enable us to be good and to do good. And today is no exception. I am interviewing the amazing Ed Gillespie. Uh, He is currently one of the directors of Greenpeace UK. He ran a sustainability company for many years, almost over 20 years. He is a journalist where he writes about sustainable travel. He is an author, author, also on the topic of sustainable travel, bit of a theme here. Uh, also a podcaster as part of the amazing Future Noughts pod with Mark Stevenson and John Richardson off of the telly. We speak about, I mean, the, the heart of it is around climate change and with a sort of emphasis on actually can businesses you know, be a part of the solution? Uh, he's He's got mixed ideas on that and it was really interesting. And we spoke about what we could learn from religion around climate change. We spoke about what he learned from his brother's death. That's very moving. And, oh, one other thing. I referenced someone called Wallace. I remembered him, but his name, I forgot the first name, and it's Anthony Wallace who writes about revitalization movements. So there is so much in this. If you want to find out more about the Lifefulness Project, go to lifefulness.io. And if you've got any comments, feedbacks, thoughts, suggestions, get in touch on social media. And uh, can't wait to hear from you. So that is goodbye from me. But just for this section, I'll come back at the end for a bit more uh, chat. And uh, welcome the really amazing Ed Gillespie. Welcome, Ed Gillespie. How's it going, Ed? Lovely to have you uh, in this shared Zoom space. What's going on where you are? Oh, it's a joyous delight to be with you, Jonathan. Um, I'm sat in my little shed uh, on the edge of the deck of the wooden watermill that I live at now in South Norfolk with the burbling of the stream uh, running underneath the building and a cacophony of nature uh, in the background. So, And it's gloriously warm and sunny, uh, having an uh, Indian summer September here. So it's about 25 degrees. So I'm, I'm enjoying being out of the direct sun, but loving the, the general uh, late seasonal ambience. Oh, that is a very thorough description. I'm gonna, I, before I got on the call, I was thinking to myself that my plant, uh, my sort of pot plant game had gone in a little out of control. And then <laughs> behind you, there is a flourishing. There's a, maybe it's quite appropriate for the discussion which is going to be on climate because you have you're big in the climate world uh you're not thunberg but you're certainly on the thunberg foothills uh <laughs> and uh, we're gonna get into that and how looking at how uh you know what we can learn from religions because i know that you're you reached out to me about you're doing a podcast on the future of religion and uh before we do that, we're going to do a slightly different start to the podcast because people said, oh, it's a life on this podcast and you sort of talk about everything. But one of the things at the heart of the life on this project is treating life as though it is sacred, uh, treating life as though it is an untold blessing, which I think it is. And I just thought it'd be great to hear from you. Like, what is it 
about life, which don't know if this is an awful question. What do you like about life? <laughs> <laughs> is it awful? Is it amazing? Well, we'll yeah, no, it's going to be one of those ones. I'm going to sound like one of those Cambridge Dons having a conversation in the street. You go, and ninthly, because I'll end up <laughs> spinning out maybe so many different points. I mean, uh, I mean, just with a very visceral gut reaction on, on these type of things. Um, I mean, I'm a full-time single father to a beautiful four-year-old girl, uh, Cleo Faye, uh, and that relationship is absolutely sacred in my life. Um, she is a daily joy. She's had her first day at school yesterday uh, and marched in with all the uh, bounding enthusiasm uh, that one would hope on the first day at school. Um, so, yeah, on a daily basis, she completely reminds me of that wonderful unfolding innocence and curiosity uh, about the world that is so easily lost as we become grizzled and seasoned old veterans uh, and with our compounded cynicism and scepticism. So I absolutely find her, you know, a, a way of bringing me back both to myself uh, and into the world. Um, and obviously... The work I've done over the last sort of 25 years uh, as an environmental campaigner or activist or consultant in various different shapes and forms, um, that natural connection is, is, is really primal for me. And it was right from my early childhood uh, messing around on the North Norfolk coast, uh, covering myself, my brothers, in black sulfurous anoxic mud, you know, um, not, not blackface, that would be completely inappropriate, but we were. But you just, your faces were black. It's not yeah. blackface. There's no, a huge exactly. difference between huge difference. those two. It's, uh, it's sort of like, like Dead Sea mud versus exactly. uh, Ed's not working again in his line of work every Exactly, day. exactly. So I think, uh, you know, and that's what led me to be on to become a marine biologist uh, and then into sort of the broader ecological uh, campaigning. But I mean, here, particularly having relocated after 25 years in South London, um, I've found this very deep joy um, at, at waking up on a daily basis and, and stepping out onto that deck. And I'm very aware of the privilege mm. uh, and good fortune of this, but you know, you're so intimately in with it all. You know, I have mm. a, pair, a pair of swans that come swimming down the river most evenings to be fed. I've got the kingfisher who fishes off my deck. I've got a pair of otters that come past and eat all the fish and then bugger off again. Um, oh my you know, otters, I, that got, is uh, some hardcore nature there. That hardcore you, nature. People from the UK uh, think that that is really sort of like from another from another time almost it's the wild it's the wild and then it's all you know it's the, but it's the small stuff as well it's it's the damselflies and the dragonflies and the butterflies and the the flies generally and all the little different um beetles my house is full of spiders which i know would send some people into a, a, a frenzy of arachnophobia but i mean i love it uh, and it's like it's the busyness of it all you know, you can sit there and have your moment of tranquility and calm and then be aware of this sort of hubbub at all the different levels of, you know, the macro level, the heron coming in to go fishing, uh, who is obviously incredibly regal uh, and poised um, in his moment of delivering death to some unsuspecting fish beneath the surface. Um, 
but I say, and then back to the bugs and the minutity, uh, and you're just realizing it's like it's all going on. You can almost feel the vibration, and uh, I, I find that glorious. I find that absolutely, totally sacred. And then when you said you can feel the vibration, I one of the reasons I quite want to explore this idea of uh you know of like people's reactions to life is i think that so, like for us life is sacred you know you go yeah, to we're yeah. always whenever you're in a bunch of well-meaning activist types everyone's always apologizing for their privilege and saying you know how uh there's some, everyone's got it worse but you go to every country in the world and when there's a funeral people are sad right there's no mm. one very few people are like oh god i really want to end this obviously very sad for the yeah. people who do feel like that etc but there is, you know, life is, you know, where where it all comes from. It's where we all connect. And so, what's that actually feel like when you start to like go and get that connection to nature or to life? Like, well, I mean, I think it's that notion of utter and complete immersive interdependence. You know, that you are inextricable and indivisible from all of this activity, no matter what your own cognitive illusions and delusions and biases might tell you, um, you know, it's it's inescapable. And, you know, one of my good friends, uh, Andres Roberts, who does a lot of work on sort of bio leadership and, and, and vision quests actually in the traditional, you know, um, uh, First Nation American sense of going out and having uh, these, these very transformative and almost transcendental experiences of just being very still for days at a time in a wild place. And also, again, in that hyper locality of a wild place, drawing that circle in the ground, which is maybe 20 feet around and not straying from it for four days. Uh, and we never, you know, we never do that. Most of our experiences are so fleeting and ephemeral that it's, it's only when you take that conscious effort to slow down and embed yourself um, in that particular place that you become aware I think and you tune back in to that indivisibility and and that, yeah that's, and he calls it all one time you know that notion of like suddenly something emerges uh, or resurfaces within you because I think I think children have it actually when I watch my daughter you know she's you know intuitively fascinated by it all she can't wait to immerse herself in it she has no fear of a huge hairy spider um i mean i know there's some of that stuff that can be genetic but for her it just seems to be it's another really cool partner on my journey look at this daddy you know yeah. this thing has an extraordinary pattern on it and hasn't it got a fat bottom uh, <laughs> you know uh, whereas you know a lot of us are like let's get that thing away from me um so yeah, I think I think it is that it's like getting getting back into it. And ironically, I even I had quite a sort of revelatory experience in lockdown one last year in my Brixton flat. Lockdown uh, I, one, I love it. It makes it sound uh, as though it is uh, you know maybe a, a, the latest tentpole movie. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Lockdown, lockdown one, three. Yeah, lockdown COVID two five. furious. <laughs> lockdowns five and six still still to come oh to gosh don't <laughs> don't mate no sorry um but you know i'd lived in the same flat in brixton for 20 years but i hadn't been uh in a way that when we had that first couple of months of being locked in and locked down and and the traffic vanished off brixton hill which was you know 100 buses an hour 
you know, myriad cars, filth, noise, engines, the lot. Uh, I remember sitting at my desk and I had the windows open on both sides of the building and all I could hear was parakeets and the, like, the cawing of crows, uh, the cooing of pigeons, the, the occasional jay. Uh, and I realised then that all of that had been going on all the time, the whole 20 years I'd been there, but I never heard it. And also I'd never been grounded in order to be there to hear it. So it felt like this retuning, you know. I mean, I wrote a lot of poetry during that period. And one of it, one of it was, you know, you didn't always see us, but we were always there, you know. And it was, it was that retuning of the eyes, the ears, the smell, the senses um, that was so wonderful. And I I, I kind of experienced Brixton uh, in, in the nature context, because there actually was loads going on. Um, for the first time in two decades so you can do it anywhere yeah uh well look that is wonderful and i think i'm gonna still try to figure out how to ask this question because <laughs> but it does really lead on i think for so many of us we are there's parts of life that we treat as sacred you know but we might not use that word and then you know we'll have those moments when it happens but I think the power of uh, what we so what we learned at Sunday Assembly was saying, actually, what if you can look at all the different things that a spiritual community does to go and bring a value, a deity, a spirit, whatever it is to life, and actually do that with our own lives? Because otherwise we just get caught up in this, you know, people commodify our lives to go and sell them back to us. So then we think yeah. that it's yeah. cheap. And in fact, it's like, oh, well, I know that people will come to me and go, oh, God, I feel really bad. The thing that I love to do is travel. And you go, hey, pilgrim, pilgrims were like a vital part of life. That's yeah. a really that's a, obviously a, a spiritual journey you can go on, like just because you've had it flogged to you and like sold in myriad of different ways. Like really go and find the sacredness in what uh, exists. Uh, try to hear the J on Brixton Hill. There we go. Uh, and so then I, from that now, going to do it. I might not ask that second question. Of, oh, yeah, I will. What would be one thing that you think uh, this increasingly secular world could learn from religion or spiritual communities? I, I, I do think it's the connection piece, but obviously that is a double-edged sword if it's in the conventional sense of, you know, religious exclusion, like you're either in the gang or you're not. Uh, but I do think that coming together uh, in, an, in an emergent and collective way uh, is extremely important with something that's bigger than us, bigger than ourselves. It takes us out of so, some of our own sort of self-flagellation and introspection um, and, and believes that there is a solidarity at a higher level. And I, that's why I think that nature interdependence piece is the ultimate thing that we all have in common. You know, it's... It, it transcends everything and every culture has a root of that um, at the base of it. And I think ironically, in some ways, we're coming back to appreciating that so many of the indigenous cultural beliefs and spiritual beliefs are actually far more representative of the scientific reality uh, than we might like to comprehend because, you know, they, they understood all of that uh, deep interconnection. They understood the sort of animism of the world uh, in a way that our supposedly sophisticated, um, you know, scientific rationality and empiricism completely dismantled and is now having to reassemble and go, oh, well, actually, actually, they probably had a point, you know, um, 
they that we thought that they were primitive but uh you know they were actually far ahead of us so i do think there's that piece which is absolutely vital and you know i mean the environmental movement talks about gaia of the integrated um you know living organism that is the planet um and i do think there's an enormous amount of resonance in that and relevance and it often feels like the science is trying to play catch up that to what we actually i think if we are able to sit down and and listen to our gut and open up our heart and just be in that presence we know it's there i think it's it's something that's sort of drummed out of us by uh, you know, the rationalization of culture. Um, uh, that I think is, you know, it's not a loose hippie, happy, clappy. Oh, no, 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 no. This is, thing. This, this is, is it. it. And it's also that thing when you said you felt that uh, immersive interconnectedness, you, I would, I'd say the difference is that it's actually is a skill you have to learn. Mm. And the, relearn, the reason, relearn. well, I don't know. Uh, we'll have, because the, I think that there's a natural stage of human development where you get out of that childish connection to the world mm. because you start to have a consciousness and you start to see other people's opinions and then, ah, and so it's actually, yeah. you've sort of got to learn how to be able to do that thinking of other people. And there's, I'm sure there's a load of stuff your child does. I don't want to besmirch her honor, <laughs> which you're just like, as an adult, I don't want you to continue to do that. No, and no. So it's like, how can we get back to that state, but with the knowledge that we've gone and got? And then it is a question of skills that you've got to learn and, you know, like our past that we've got to overcome, trauma, all of those things. And I, I guess the one that's a really positive thing I wanted to uh, jump onto. The other bit, though, I did have one issue with your sort of bigging up indigenous culture because I'm not got anything against indigenous culture as a, a whole. I, you know, hugely pro it. But I also think that the culture that, uh, you know, Western people are part of comes from an indigenous culture, right? And there were there were religious people who believed in God, who still do, by the way, and who were all like, yeah, we're all sort of connected to everything. It's all, and it took different expressions. And if you go and see the survival rates of megafauna, mm -hmm. once humans arrive on an island, they are not good. Like the, mo yeah. the moa got absolutely nailed by the Maoris. Yeah. And so did the Moriori, who were a tribe who, or a people who lived uh, a bit further away than the Maoris. And then the Maoris got bigger canoes and they've killed the hell out of them. They genocided them to bits. Yeah. And so I'm, again, I'm- <laughs> No, that's a fair point. It's not, a fair I don't point. want to say that like it is, uh, I don't- <laughs> Well, you we're know, not the sort of thing that we're trying yeah. to, it's not to glorify, but then it's also uh, to like go and take the good. And I, I, I'm probably a bit like you when I see all the people I agree with slightly sort of going along with one thing. I always feel the need to be a yeah. bit perverse about it. I think, no, I think you're absolutely right, Anderson. I mean, we're not trying to sort of glorify this or, or take the whole thing uh, kit and caboodle. Uh, but I do think particularly that perception of interconnection, even if, yes. as you say, some of the practices and behaviours were just as just as human and flawed as they be are more, today. Be more Aztec. <laughs> what we need to do is we need to be sacrificing thousands yes. of people an hour. Uh, FYI, also an Aztec empire. Like it's, you know, you know, potato, potato to the people they invaded, I'm sure. Yeah, I know, I know. Oh, funny, if I went back at my old school um, for the first time in 30 years the other week, 
uh, and we were just getting a tour around the classrooms and there was a big notice board full of photos um and it was a, it was a bunch of kids sort of dressed up um with one of them dressed as a sheep and another one wielding a sword and they're basically the, the title of the it was recreating a sacrifice <laughs> <I> thought, <laughs> that's what we want kids to be doing in their classic yes. lessons <laughs> get ready for the world of work kids yeah uh, and so uh, now, having done those, probably those questions have really stretched out longer, but I love them all. And I'd love to get into your, not your background, your sort of your world and your work in like environmentalism, sustainability and climate change. And the, and you've worked in it in business. And then now you, you know, uh, there's that sort of interest in religion, but really like where, like, where are we now in the world of climate? And can businesses, you know, who you consulted and worked with, can they actually help make that change? How sweary are we allowed to be on this podcast, Sam? Sweary as you like, mate. Sweary as you like. I just, it's always good to check. Um, so, I mean, I, the, one of the podcasts I now present uh, with, you know, your fellow comedian, John Richardson, and, and my other futurist buddy, Mark Stevenson, um, which is called, uh, the latest series is called The Book of Revelations, um, funnily enough, because uh, we're all about trying to uncover some of the stuff around the future. And we, we talk a lot about apocalyptic visions, but not in the kind of doom and gloom and Armageddon sense, but the drawing back of the veil, the original etymology of the world, a word, let's see how the world is really working, you know, in, in all its um, very difficult and challenging realities. Uh, and the questions we ask ourselves on that are like, are we fucked? Why are we fucked? And how do we unfuck ourselves? Mm. And, and I think the three the, questions. The three ideal questions. before any date uh, yeah. situation. <laughs> really, just go for the three. Yeah, exactly. the thing is actually like unfucking after you have fucked someone is very complicated. It's quite it's quite I don't even know how you do that. <laughs> so, and, I, and it's been a big journey for me because I think I I co-founded this agency Futera, you know, back at the turn of the millennium. Um, and worked there for 18 years. And we were very much, you know, sort of pragmatic optimists, banging the drum saying, actually, you know, business is a huge part of the solution. Uh, everyone needs to get on board. And, and I think I progressively began to get not just impatient, but a bit disillusioned. Um, I think, especially as the time sort of ticked away. We're very good at sort of setting false timetables for ourselves. Mm. You know, so a hundred months to save the world. Or, 2020, you know, don't yeah, do, sorry, actually 2021. Guys, we're giving us an extension I on know, that one. I know, exactly. It's like the Euros, isn't it? Just have to roll it over a year. Um, and I don't know, I think I had this creeping and rather nagging doubt that actually what I was involved with as a consultant was actually becoming part of the problem of slowing the pace of change required that was generating sort of fig leaves of respectability that businesses could wear, giving themselves the impression of caring and doing something, but largely maintaining incremental business as usual. Um, and, and that was a very hard thing to, to come up against. It was almost like having to go into your own confessional space and look very hard at what you'd done. And also the ego and accomplishment and all of the things that come along with you know, co-founding what is, you know, still quite a successful business, although I'm not involved with, with them now, and that's a different story. But, you know, I I had my sort of dark night of the soul, particularly as things like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports got worse. 
um, it just seemed like everything was intensifying in the wrong direction. And actually, it wasn't like we weren't even changing things. We were barely bending the curve. We were barely even slowing the pace at things at which things were getting worse rather than accelerating the pace at which they were getting better. So it's it's tough. I mean, we are in, you know, I think a collective existential pinch point. Um, there's no doubt about that. The lived experience of climate change uh, with the increased intensification and ferocity of uh, of the accumulated heat in the system, which makes for a much, much more turbulent atmosphere, as we can all uh, appreciate, which means, you know, greater changeability, more extreme storms, typhoons, floods, hurricanes, these fire seasons that now seem to happen, not just in Australia and, and California and in America, but also in Europe and Greece and, and Turkey uh, and Portugal. So I think it's come, it's come to our doorstep much faster than even people like myself might have imagined, you know, as very, very embedded campaigners, you know, and I, because I've been working on climate change in some way, shape or form for 25 years, this isn't a black swan. This is a kind of white swan, which has swum towards us with absolutely grim predictability. Um, and yet the stuff that's happening now is the stuff that's still supposed to be a bit of a way away. And that I swan think, was just coming towards saying, hey, by the way, guys, I know you're talking about me and I'm climate yeah. change and you've seen and you've seen these disasters. Yeah. I'm definitely coming. It's it's basically like when you're trying to doing hide and seek when you've got a little kid there. Yeah. You're letting them know what's happening. And it's really tough. So my optimism is severely dented. I think I still have a degree of hope, although I am also sort of increasingly slightly in the Derek uh, Janssen camp. You know, it's like actually real action begins when hope dies. Um, because I think we are still trying to reconcile a paradox. You know, we all say we want to change, but we're not prepared to do the things that deliver that change. And, and, and it's an awkward one. Um, and we want to do the stuff that makes us feel comfortable. We don't want to do the stuff that we're afraid of. Um, uh, and as a consequence, you know, you it's and also, you know, climate change in itself is is effectively a, a racist issue because and it's a col colonial issue um, because it has these huge historical factors uh, that mean that those who are least responsible for it are the ones that experience it in the most extreme sense. It also has a gender dimension, you know, so so climate is the, the kind of big lens. And it's also the thing that we can become very quantified about when we talk about carbon. But this is why I think it's important not to lose sight of that interconnected piece we were talking about in regard to the sacredness of nature, because the ecological destruction that goes alongside climate change is for me more terrifying actually because the two things start to become like these intertwined chimeras that that actually double up to make things even worse and you know i used to work in fisheries when i was a marine biologist uh and i realized quite early on in my career having worked in the tropics and various different reef fisheries and prawn fisheries uh, that i was going to spend my whole career saying if you don't stop catching all the fish there won't be any fish and, and that sort of very utilitarian view of nature um, became quite upsetting. And I think we're now in this moment that unless we start to comprehend that what we need is, is restoration and regeneration, 
it'll it'll be gone before we realize and appreciate what we're what we've lost and what we're losing uh, and in fisheries we used to talk about that as shifting baseline syndrome whereby mm. every generation of fishery scientists would start their careers accepting one level of fish populations but every year that had been going down. So they were assuming that that was the norm. And I think we can sort of apply that now to the fecundity and diversity of nature immediately around us. Like my daughter is experiencing a nature which is a fraction of what I experienced growing up in the same area 40 years ago. I was uh, on a beach in Cornwall looking at rock pools and I suddenly found myself being a sort of uh you know like some sort of comedian just going oh rock, rock poles back in my day you know back like that, yeah, yeah that, looking at that but i was like where are the starfish i know you know, I know where are the where are the small little fish in these rock pools maybe they're just not in cornwall but they are in sort of northeast uh england they are in northumbria in the past maybe they're still there that's where they've all gone I know, but I know. uh yeah it is odd and the the sort of the lack of butterflies the lack of yeah. caterpillars these i my grandparents grew up in uh, in Suffolk and no, they didn't grow up there. I grew up uh, and sort of uh, ended up uh, spending a lot of time there. Hope you mm. don't let this Norfolk Suffolk thing go and spoil the conversation. I was born in Ipswich. Yeah. Uh-oh. Uh, and <laughs> the, yeah, and just but there being so many, like just yeah. a ludicrous amount. And it's so odd that that sort of thing can happen yeah. in our lifetime and you don't notice it because it happens bit by bit and you're very busy. Yeah. And I mean, so that is the, uh, the doom and gloom part of it. Uh, there are, but we, by the way, we're not going to say there's no more doom and gloom in this talk. Uh, but one of the things that I want to chat to you about was, uh, you are as part of your futurology podcast, you're doing a series on the future of religion. And I was wondering, what is it about religion that interests you in the world of climate change mm. and in sort of shaping the future uh, that uh, we're all going to be living in? Well, we, we're not doing a series on the future of religion. We're doing an episode. You're doing so an that, episode. Oh, sorry, my bad. But you're also interviewing that. OK, anywho, we'll so carry yeah. on. Well, no, no, I think it's an important point to note because what we try and do on the future notes is try and take a systemic approach to all the challenges. And so um, every episode focuses on a specific theme. So, mm -hmm. you know, we've done future of fashion, future of energy, uh, you know, future of shit, future of death. Um, yeah. and, and, and obviously you can, these are big topics and we just take them in different slices, but obviously the future of religion uh, and, and, and faith, I guess, in a broader sense, um, it's definitely a hot topic and I don't think you can shy away from it. You know, mm. we, we're also doing one on the future of race uh, in this series, which, you know, we, we want to engage in potentially controversial topics um, or certainly contentious and highly sensitive. Mm. I think maybe that's a better way of describing it. And so um, I think we're fascinated. I mean, circling back to what you were saying, um, you know, in terms of asking me what I wanted us to value, I think there is that, that connection piece that we're interested in finding. I mean, my mate Mark, who I do the podcast with, is a radical empiricist. You know, he is, uh, we were joking um, by email this morning about who we might get on for the future of religion, you know, alongside your good self. And Mark is just, I think he's actually secretly a bit terrified of anything that comes across as vaguely, vaguely woo. Um, and so he, he was sort of 
decrying some of the people I'd suggested uh, because you know you just have to mention the word astrology and Mark runs for the hills. Uh, and I said, this is like the empiricist strikes back. And he goes, yes, but we are dealing with a phantom menace here. And it's like the Star Wars, Star Wars jokes becoming thick and fast. Um, but yeah, as I say, we asked those three questions. Uh, and I think, you know, the episode will be a fascinating exploration of, you know, what, why are we fucked on, on religion? Why are we fucked and why, why is it problematic? And what are the best aspects of it that we might recapture or salvage or evolve? Um, into something which serves, um, which serves us perhaps collectively as a bigger humanity. And, and then ultimately our approach is always like, it's not about visions necessarily of that compelling, attractive and possible future, but it's about asking the right questions, which is obviously something that, you know, religious practice and ritual does very well. It gets us to ask the bigger, more fundamental and, and deeper questions in the way that, you know, the five whys that my four-year-old daughter continually asks me help me to get through some of my assumptions and work out, well, yeah, why is that? I mean, I, I haven't asked myself that for years because that's that's an assumption. Um. <laughs> well, often I think that we actually are sort of asking ourselves that, but never consciously. Yeah. You know, we're going through and we're like, you've got the, oh God, why, the, why am I at work? Why am I doing this? But you don't often like go and follow it down. You just like got that vague feeling. There's something that sort of makes me feel dissatisfied. It's not really totally aligned with what I want to do, but I'm sort of, my body is asking it, but I've gone and accepted uh, yeah. a lot of it the, the, with these glasses, which uh, society gave me and saying, this is what's, this is yeah. what's real. And I think it for me, I mean, the other podcast I do, which is with, um, my fellow campaigner Dougal Hine, which is called The Great Humbling, actually. And that's sort of asking the question, what would our, our challenges uh, and our world look like if we approached them without the arrogance and hubris of so much of like human problem solving um, and actually took time to get down on our knees uh, in a genuinely grounded sense mm. uh, and saw the world from that perspective. Um, in the last series, we did one... But the whole series was called um, New Moves, and each one was an instruction. Uh, so we did a sort of keep it foolish, uh, small yourself up. Uh, and we did one which was called Get On Your Knees. Uh, and, and in it, we talked about the lack of, of, of appreciative practice of gratitude in our lives, in our modern sec secular lives. You know, how little we actually make the space and time oh, beyond beyond preach, those brother preach. Yeah, beyond those rituals of 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 religion that can sometimes be a little bit performative and 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 it's making the space for those uh and i think it made even dougal deny through the process of recording the episode question the absence of ritual in so much of our lives and i know you've spoken to wonderful people like our mutual mm. friend to Dahan on this type of uh, of issue but I found myself trying to create little rituals for my daughter and I, which are these sort of secular nature rituals. And, you know, and at, and at the, the basic level, we always have the, the conversation at dinner because it's just the two of us. So we eat together every night and always say, you know, and what are you grateful for today? Which in terms of self-esteem and happiness and well-being and, you know, and lifefulness. I mean, we all know that 
we're so piss poor at kind of checking our gratitude enough. Yeah, that, that it's hedonic like, adaptation, what? you yeah. get something and, you know, it makes sense if you're a monkey and you've just eaten, you don't just want to yeah. be like, I've eaten once, never going to eat again. <laughs> no, you've got, uh, it's like, oh, I've climbed up one rung in the ladder, oh. I'm fine here. It sort of makes sense, but it does mean that if not, we've got this permanent sense of dissatisfaction, yeah. which can then go and be hijacked very easily by sort of like illusory uh, sort of solutions to your sort of fears and worries and uncertainties. And in fact, like literally I, I go for a run with my son every day on the way to nursery and we do thank you. What are you thankful for? What are you grateful? And it's transformative. Like you uh, increase the amount of gratitude for what you already have and yeah. you will become richer every day. Exactly, exactly. And we all know it's true. I mean, you know, it, it's interesting. So that the, I call, I jokingly call my mill the mill of impermanence um, because it's two and a half meters above sea level. Uh, who knows what climate change and sea level rise will throw at us by the end of the century. It'll probably see me out, but it may not be much uh, uh, for my daughter to, to acquire. Um, and I don't really believe in inheritance anyway, so that's fine. Oh, well, look, um, you've really got she, around she, to that problem there. <laughs> she might, might, yeah, she might take a different view, but... Um, you know, I, I really tragically, I lost my brother, my dear brother, two years ago, um, which is a real shock because he's only in his mid-40s, taken mm. by an aneurysm, just like that. Uh, and I think it was one of those, like, flooring moments of humility and grief, which are incredibly mm. difficult when they hit you. And, you know, the, the heart is still, like, deeply bruised now. But equally... Oh, man, you know, I'm sorry as, uh, yeah, and as the time moves on, I'm I'm so appreciative and grateful mm. for everything that he brought. Yeah, even in his sort of you know relatively limited life, because he's only forty four. But my brother, my brother had that appreciation and gratitude. He had a joie de vivre about him that was absolutely addictive and compelling and and, and so touching to all who mm. met him. You know, he was a cheeky, sharp-tongued rapscallion in many mm. ways. But I remember sitting down with him once when he was sort of jumping from job to job and not really doing anything with his life except being a beautiful human being. Um, <laughs> except loving I, it. <laughs> I know, exa exactly, but it's exactly this. And I said, oh, come on, well, you know, what do you think life's for? And he just shot back at me and he just went, building meaningful relationships with my fellow human beings. And I was like, yeah, you're <laughs> fucking right, you're fucking right, you know. And, you know, and it's the love that he bought in his short life, which, you know, my appreciation and gra gratitude for that now is something that you can, I carry, for, or I endeavor to carry forward the best, the best aspects of him, because that is the pay it forward hopefully within generations and across generations that makes us better collectively. You know, I, I, I want to, you know, address some of the flaws and fo foibles of my own father through my parenting. And necessarily that will be imperfect. And my daughter will no doubt um, rage and, and be joyful about you know, the discrepancies between my, asp <laughs> my aspirations and the actual reality. But he had you know, a shed. Let me tell you, that's all you need to know about my dad. Shed Gillespie. Yeah. And I had to live in and with that shame. Yeah, uh, exactly. Exactly. But I mean, so again, circling back, you know, it's like, I think those, 
again, it's the, the presence, the ritual, the moments, the space, the slowing down. Um, you know, I, I saw when actually when you emailed me about um, Sarah Zoltash, you know, and I just I saw on her profile, which just said, you know, move slowly and grow things. And I was just like, oh, my God, talk about the antidote to yeah, yeah, the kind yeah. of Silicon Valley horse shit of, you know, move fast and break things without any fucking due diligence or consequence of what you're smashing uh oh bits. you just yeah. broke burma you broke yeah. india you broke democracy uh, you have done a really good job of breaking a lot of the things which are holding us together and you still seem as though your face was stitched together about a robot who's yeah. like missing was not quite yet at the level which was needed to fully reproduce oh, a no. human so what I, what I hope i guess in terms of you know a potential transcendence and i think these paradigms take a long time to play out and i think in some ways i'm i'm sort of reconciled to the fact that you know a you, you know you never get to see um the full manifestation of your work um or the the paradigm shift that you might well be in the middle of because they take decades to unfold um you, you know I, i'm it's like that Greek proverb, isn't it? You know, when civilization is when old men plant trees that they will never enjoy the shade of. Mm. Uh, I, 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 because hope. they'll get carbon credits, right? That's why you don't <laughs> cut the tree down. Yeah, because that means that I that's, can go and start a new coal that's station. The Twenty twenty one version. <laughs> old men plant trees to sequester carbon to save their <laughs> grandchildren. Yeah, uh, but. You know, it's that sort of clock of the long now. We're we're absolutely piss poor at thinking anything beyond our mm. sort of ego-led uh, lifespans, which is why I think, you know, I mean, I, I I was born and brought up in Norwich and spent every school assembly in the morning in Norwich Cathedral, which took a hundred years to build. I was like, yeah, when, when do we have to build anything that takes a hundred years? Uh, you know, I think if you start to imagine agriculture on cathedral timescales, that reverence, mm. that understanding of what the land wants not what you can impose upon it but you know how you align your practice of food cultivation with the desires and aspirations of a, of a biodiverse nature uh and, and work you know literally with the soil rather than fighting a battle across the top of it because you know you'll know with your sort of east anglian roots as well i mean we're talking about but but again just you know, i was just, born there and then went to italy i'm gonna just if, yeah. you, if you're gonna do a quiz on suffolk i'm out mate yeah <laughs> i went into a shop in bungie once which is right on the norfolk suffolk border uh and my mum actually lives in norfolk and bungie is in suffolk uh, i was just chatting with this one i lived in london but i was chatting with the woman behind the counter and she goes she goes, are you from around here? And I said, well, yeah, I grew up around here. I live in London now. I said, but, and she sort of, you know, gave me the look, I'm in London now. Uh, and I said, but I really, I really love coming back to Norfolk. You know, I can just feel those pressures of the city easing away. And she just looked at me and she went, you're in Suffolk now. <laughs> that sounds like it's the last words that you've ever, you'll ever yeah. hear. Yeah. So you get into a back yeah, of a battered Suffolk. car <laughs> driven up a lane. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, the I could, for me one of the things which I uh, sort of really think about in this area is there's a work of I've forgotten his first name but his second name is Wallace and he did uh, lots of study on revitalization movements and renewal movements and you know this was you know that's how society went and changed when one set of uh, 
sort of one set of cultural assumptions, when one way of looking at the world, when that broke down. And previously, like most of our assumptions had been religious assumptions. You would have a renewal, you would have a revitalization period, you would have the uh, the reformation, whatever it might be. And and then he talks about these like moments of, you know, where there is a cultural crisis and this happens in societies. And what then, and that's where I think it's really useful to look at religious pointers where they go actually like his fourth stage is where there is a syncretic union with new values, which will go and help us get into the future and the things from the past, which we can still keep. And what's amazing when looking at that, the, this these things they can happen really quickly you know like that's i guess that's the thing which i i do come back to it's just like a, sometimes these social changes you know we look at what's happened in the past 10 years you know there is the potential for them to happen quickly even though there's a probability that they'll like but that speed of change will come after a lot of pain and work and everything else but that's you know that idea of renewal that idea of revitalization is I think the thing which I, I think is so powerful in religious practice and you know the religious history. Again, with my biologist hat on, I would say, yes, you know, they, you know, there's the theories of evolution. One is what they call phyletic gradualism, where it's like long, slow branches of diversification. Um, and then there's punctuated equilibria, you know, where it nothing changes much for a long while, then it just, you know, then it it changes massively and then it stabilizes again. Um, and, you know, that plays to the sort of the social theory that you're describing. And the, the trouble is when a system starts to lose its credibility and functionality, it becomes very adept at resisting change or trying to resist change. You know, and I, and I do think that's some of the, the, the turbulence we're experiencing now, which is, again, why I, I didn't change sides, you know, but what I did was say, I don't want to, I don't want to support, I don't want to stabilise this. Actually, I, I, you know, I don't, we don't want to encourage uh, a transition which is painful, although I think whatever happens next um, does involve, unfortunately, some societal pain. Uh, there's, you know, there's no such thing as a pain-free transition. And I think we've left the climate challenge so late uh, in the day that we're likely to see a lot of knee-jerk reaction now and things are gonna get a lot worse as they also get a lot better. And that's the sort of shakedown, because I think you will see new regulation and new legislation coming in, which changes the parameters around organizations and their license to operate. You know, it just it, it exposes in the apocalyptic sense their fundamental unsustainability and failure to comprise part of a better world that is possible. Um, and, and that's going to get rough. And I think we should also take some you know, sucker from that creative destruction because per perpetuating a lot of those systems is already inflicting enormous amounts of pain and suffering on people all over the world and on the wider web of nature. So, you, you know, we spoke about a painful transition. It's like the pain of sustaining this is pretty intense. And so to what extent is there a, a, a bonus that might actually come where we start to be able to look after the people who are most excluded right now, uh, whilst also beginning to weave and stitch back together the web of life, which provides all the glory and beauty uh, and sustainability that we depend on. I suppose that's one of the things that uh, 
we have to battle against is because for so many people, life is hard, that any extra privation, any extra sort of limit on their behaviors, any, uh, you know, sort of like extra cost in their lives is, you know, has huge ramifications. And so, you know, it's very hard to go and make that change. And, and again, part of the reasons why systems are great is because I'm, I'm uh, listening to an amazing uh, podcast on the history of Rome. And uh, for all the uh, uh, for all the downsides of Rome, like the end of Rome is pretty, pretty gnarly stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and the you know, there were lots of people who like, one of the reasons that Rome ended is that people wanted to get into the empire, <laughs> and they weren't letting them in. And yeah, I suppose there's and then another sort of thought which just went and sort of could there tricking. possibly be any lessons there? I don't know. Oh no, no, know. no, no, no. There's no I'm, I'm, listening to that podcast was just it was lesson central: <laughs> the decline of the republic, the rise of the authoritarians. It's like oh gosh, not again, 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 yeah, again, yeah. again, again. My, my history doesn't always repeat itself, but it sometimes rhymes. Yeah. The, uh, do you ever wonder that in another great religious tradition? Uh, you know, you're uh, just another one of those eschatologists, the people who say the end is nigh, because there is a there is a really good like humans love to think that the world is going to end in their yeah. generation. I mean, yeah. one thing that you could look and it's a really interesting tendency. I don't know why. So it's the same thing with the preppers, with people yeah. who are in cults. I mean, maybe without answering it about you, what do you think it is about humans that we love to think the world's about to end? In our lifetime, I think it's because we we try and deny the fact that we're all going to die. Mm. <laughs> you know, I think so it's, it's better that the world dies than I yeah. die. I do think I do think that's probably the psychological root of it. It's like it's a failure to deal with your own mortality and going, I'm going to go. So it must be the fact that everything's going to go with me. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, it, it's like like the the Helena Hancock type of mentality and the hand wringing. And you know, I think that death denial is also connected back into what you were saying earlier in terms of um you know overconsumption and material consumption because it, it it's a way of accumulating meaning through acquisition um and as you said you know that's like a simulacrum to the real needs of of self-esteem and health and happiness uh, and well-being that we really want um so yes i i do think and i, I i'm not quite out with my sandwich board walking up and down the streets of Loddon, you know, uh, I mean, not necessarily pointing accusations of uh, finger finger accusations at people, but yes, I, I hear what you're saying. And I think that's, that is obviously a, uh, uh, an accusation, which is also leveled at people like Extinction Rebellion, you know, and some of some of the more, um, you know, vocal and creative, uh, and I would argue quite compassionate uh, and critically thinking organisations which are trying to to raise awareness. But again, if you come back to what I was saying earlier, you know, the actual the evidence is also there. It's not saying we you know we're bumping up against this. We're not we're not talking about some kind of you know imaginative apocalypse. You know, it's like literally there's fuck all insects left. You know, we're eating we've eaten half the fish. We've chopped down half the forest, guys. The atmosphere is heating up. It's not going to get cooler. It's only going to get hotter now. The, the question is, to what degree do we slow that heating and control it or contain it or somehow adapt to it? So this is not, you know, um, pie in the sky, apocalyptic thinking. It's like, what the 
fucking science is telling us. And so we can be in denial of that. And I don't think it's, you know, I don't think we're quite at the kind of total um, existential extermination risk yet, the end of humanity full stop. But it's certainly for me, what drives me is the alleviation of suffering. Um, and a climate scientist summed it up best for me a few years ago. He just said, what you have to remember is that every tonne of carbon that doesn't go into the atmosphere now alleviates future human suffering in some way, shape or form. Um, and that's sobering because that then it puts it in context. It's like going, no, what you do matters. What, you know, it may seem insignificant, but ev every action counts, even if it's not, you know, metrically, it counts spiritually and philosophically. And in terms of the, the social proof um, and, and collective endeavor and and that's where we're at you know so it's yeah I'm I'm not I'm not screaming we're all gonna die except I am <laughs> <laughs> I'm not one of those loonies who says we're all gonna die except we might literally all die well Bukowski said it Charles Bukowski one of my favorite quotes he just said you know we're all gonna die every single one of us you know and that should make us love one another like there is no tomorrow and we don't you know and instead we fight each other over petty insecurities he goes what a shit show <laughs> yeah the i mean i by the way that was my cheeky question uh i also <laughs> i do believe in the science yeah. uh not the science of vaccines uh the uh and <laughs> big reveal and so maybe that's a selling point it's like throughout millennia people have loved to think that the world is going to end in their lifetime and it's just a human tendency that we delight in having that. I think there's also a sense of importance. It's us, it's on our watch. But this time, you're right, get it while it's hot. Like you can, <laughs> uh, you can be an eschatologist and maybe this, and you're, you're really on it this time. You're on the money. Well, I mean- <laughs> Is that a good call to action? I think- <laughs> As a communications yeah. expert? Oh God, well, see, I- It's got the word eschatology in it. This and is that's not I... something used on a billboard. I, you know, I've tied myself in so many strategic and tactical knots over what is the best way to communicate this over the years. And, you know, and you come down to the fact it's a bit like Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, the only way you ever get an alcoholic to reconcile and begin change is by acknowledging that they have a problem, you know. And before that, you know, anything you can do to try and engage them tends to fall on stony ground. It's got to be owned by them. So uh, I think in some ways, until we have the collective emotional and, and psychological maturity to deal with what the full science and the implications of it, of climate change are, then we're still only sort of scratching at the surface. And that I think does have a kind of uh, a spiritual evolution to it, which is away from the sort of existential hand wringing. It's like we could be so much better. There is always a space for uh, development of our maturity of our relationship with one another and the wider planet. Um, and perhaps even if we can't change the whole world, there is a sphere of influence like my back garden with anyone's back garden or a window box or with their neighbors where you can practice that more beautiful world that Charles Eisenstein that Charles Eisenstein says in our hearts is possible. I think that's that's where 
where I end up going back to when I've when I've realized my global strategizing is fucked. <laughs> well, look, that is an awesome place to end it. Uh, Eddie G, Ed Gillespie, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Can't wait to then go and have a uh, join you later down the road. And uh, all the best in all that you do. You're a wonderful person. My pleasure, Sanderson. An absolute delight, as always. How was that? Uh, I really liked it. Uh, it's great doing things with people you've known for a while who, you know, can just also dick around a bit. But one thing I've realised is that he's got a wonderful way of expressing himself. He is uh, lyrical in his turn of phrase, and it was beautiful to go and be able to eavesdrop on that for a while. Yeah. Uh, what did you think about the new opening? I really liked it because I really did want to go and sort of focus, you know, life on this could be such a big project because, you know, we're reimagining the spiritual community. But then what does that look like in a, a normal life? Is that for individuals? How can it happen at work? So it's kind of tough when you're trying to create this sort of new category. But I did want to come back to this idea that at its heart, it is about treating life as though it's sacred, really about looking at all that we have, not all the things which are lacking, of focusing on this gift, which is being alive. Oh, even as I talk about it, as I turn my mind to this wondrous fact, I start to feel a change coming over me because it's not going to exist for very long. No climate change or no being an alive human, sensing, breathing, touching, dancing, feeling guiltying person doesn't last forever. And by treating it as though it's sacred, by forming communities around this thing, I think we've got the opportunity to have both transcendence and connection in a way that everyone can get involved. So, oh yeah, I think it is good to focus on that. All right, thanks so much for listening, my wonderful, lovely wonderbugs. And I will uh, speak to you. I'll make another one of these for next week. Uh, thanks to Ed Gillespie for uh, talking. Thanks to James Cross, my co-host, who I thank, even though he's not on this one. Mavs Shetty, who edited this. And Roman Rapak and Miro Shot for the music that you're listening to right now. <laughs>